Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 340th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an actress who is always so good that people tend to take her for granted. She is perhaps best known for her work in Ava DuVernay's 2019 limited series, When They See Us, for which she received the Best Actress in a Limited Series or TV Movie Emmy nomination. But she has also made memorable contributions to a wide assortment of other projects. Arthouse films, such as 2004's Ray and 2011's The Help, sharing in the Best Ensemble SAG Award nomination for the former and win for the latter, as well as 2014's Get On Up, 2016's The Birth of a Nation, and 2018's If Beale Street Could Talk, big studio films like 2000's Men of Honor and 2014's The Taking of Pelham 123, TV series like Quantico, on which she was a regular from 2015 through 2017, limited series like 2012's Missing and 2015's The Book of Negroes, and TV movies like 2009's Gifted Hands, The Ben Carson Story, 2012's Abducted, The Carlina White Story, and most recently in Christine Swanson's 2020 Lifetime movie, The Clark Sisters, First Ladies of Gospel, which pulled in massive ratings when it went on the air in April, and for which her portrayal of pioneering gospel musician and choral director Dr. Maddie Moss Clark is generating widespread Emmy buzz. Miss Ingenue Ellis. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old and I discussed the fateful events that led her from Mississippi to Broadway to Hollywood, what it was like to professionally bust out of the gate but then experience a number of very lean years, what the last 15 months or so have been like for her, encompassing the release of When They See Us, her unexpected Emmy nomination, and then the tremendous reception for her work in The Clark Sisters, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Anjanou, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm really excited to get to speak with you. And I want to first, though, ask you how you are doing during this very weird time we are living through. Uh, pretty crazy, huh? Yes, it is. Every day is an episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> Exactly. Every day, you know, and I, I don't, I guess, you know, it's, just, it's a testament to all of our survival that, you know, we're here and I'm having a conversation with you and pretending, I think we're kind of pretending, you know, that all of this craziness isn't happening. You know, we're, we're, we're in a, you know, our own sort of TV series of our own. Um, You're right. Yeah, while the world and where where are you hunkered down? Well, I'm I'm in California at the moment because of um I it was she was shooting yeah. and all this stuff started happening, so I haven't been able to go home yet. And your home generally is Mississippi. Yeah, that's my home. Generally so, and specifically, that's it. yeah. <laughs> well, I think before we uh, go down the the usual kind of biographical order of things, I have to ask you, because, and I'm sure you get this every single day of your life, but how did you come to have such a beautiful but unusual name? And if you wouldn't mind, you know, I guess just the spelling and the pronunciation and all of it, it's just if you would share how it all came about. Well, it's it's spelled A-U-N-J-A-N-U-E. 
And, you know, it's I have this, you know, name and I also work in this industry, the ad film and television. So I get it on a couple. I get it on the tech side and I get it on the creative side because apparently there's a lens, a shooting lens for camera called an ingenue. And also that's uh, an ingenue is a role for a, a young, a young actor or a, a young woman in a in a in a play or a show, whatever. But I am not. I am no longer an ingenue. <laughs> oh well, you know. Well, but th- so does does this mean that your parents kind of called it? Did they know that? Uh, you know, somehow did they suspect that you were going to wind up in this line of work? You know what? I my mother. My mother was one of the most creative people that I've ever known. She was an artist without a medium. If that makes any sense, you know, absolutely without a declared medium, she, you know, she thrived in a lot of ways, but, you know, she didn't have paints and brushes. She, she just was this really creative person in her, in her way of thinking, particularly because she was from conservative Southwest Mississippi. And so she left that area, left Mississippi and migrated like my aunts and a lot of my aunts and uncles and a lot of people did during the Great Migration. And they ended up in Northern California. So she became this sort of like bohemian chick and, you know, was hanging out with the bohemian other chicks. And she got pregnant and um, they, I guess there was the, the theory, the idea was, the lore is, is there's this magazine called Ingenue, this foreign, this European mag- magazine called Ingenue way back then. And she decided that would be my name. And did the magazine spell it the conventional way or did they spell it your way? Uh, well, I'm assuming that they probably spelled it the French way of spelling it. You know, I-N-G-E-N-U-E. Um, yeah. But she spelled it her own way, which is typical. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. So you, as you just mentioned, you're born in San Francisco, right? And how, though, did you wind up being raised back in Mississippi? I Well, I believe sh- she stayed in San Francisco. She did stay in San Francisco. She... She was she was very, very young. And, and, you know, during that time, women didn't have children out of wedlock without a great deal of shame, a great deal of shame. And you would have to a lot of times you would have to come in front of the church and apologize in front of the congregation if you got pregnant out of wedlock. So not only was my mother pregnant out of and not married, but she was the pastor's daughter. I was going to say, you come from a pretty religious Baptist family, right? Exactly. She was the pastor's daughter and pregnant and not married. So it, it, it was too much for her to handle. It was just, it went, it, it was too much for her to handle. She couldn't take care of me financially. And she, my mother was, my mother was the contemporary of Angela Davis and Asada Shakur. And, you know, she was kicked out of college for protesting. And she actually moved to Georgia to, to work with um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, after she was kicked out of school for protesting. So that's the kind of spirit my mother was. And I remember one time she told me, she said, my, my generation had to reject my mother's generation 
of of the way they thought, the way that they that fifties generation of being the housewife, you know, and being the the domestic. And she she said we had I had to we had to turn away from that, and 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 she you know gave me to my grandmother, and my grandmother you know started raising me when she was in her mid sixties. Wow. And I know that you and she were very close. Now was her, so her husband was the reverend? Yes. Yes. And he, he had had his, if I, if I'm talking about the, the same grandfather, which I think I am, he had had his own ordeal during the civil rights era, right? Yeah, he did. My grandfather was a pastor. He was a pastor, but he was also, he was really this, you know, community figure, you know, he was a pastor of several different churches, four different churches during that time, because people, you know, transportation wasn't as easy as it is now. You know, there was one car that people, a lot of people had to share, you know, it just out the, our idea modes of transportation did not exist then. So you were sort of limited to the church that you could walk to, you know, of course. Yeah. As a result, a lot of times these pastors were itinerant in a way and that he would go from church to church. So he ultimately pastored four churches at the same time. So, yeah. And, and in addition to that, the in, in the summer of 1964, which was uh, Freedom Summer, the Freedom Riders came to Mississippi to register black Americans to vote. And they were looking for places to have organizing meetings. They were rejected because people were afraid to give them space. And my grandfather gave them permission to meet at his church. And ultimately, they, they bombed his church as, um, as, a, as a reprisal for that. And, um, and they also arrested him. They also arrested him for bombing his own church. They accused him of bombing his own church. His own church, yes. Yeah. Jesus. Excuse me, not Jesus. That's a, I shouldn't say Jesus, but that's. <laughs> There's a wow. lot of people saying Jesus back, like Lord Jesus, let him be okay. Yeah. And they took yeah. him. They took him to jail. They took him to jail. You know the the story is they took him to jail in the middle of the night in his pajamas, and um, you know he you know mercifully came home. I mean, this was during the time when. A lot of these sort of things were happening and people were calling Robert F. Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time, and he would sort of intervene in these local cases to get people uh, released from jail because this was happening constantly. And from my understanding, a call like that is why he was able to come home. So you really grew up pretty uh, observantly in the church, and I guess that was where you first performed for the first time as well? Yeah, I yeah, it was. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it, they I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I I felt so affirmed. I heard Angela Bassett say this, you know, and she was talking about her. I think she was raised in North Florida or something like that. And she was talking about her, her being raised in the church. And it's just what you had to do. You didn't have a choice. You you had to be in the choir. You had to make Easter speeches and Christmas speeches. And you just had, you had no, and you had to recite these long, you know, swaths of scripture. You know, we got competitive with it. You know, how many verses can you do? It, it was just, it was just a thing, like and a yeah. thing, you know. So whether you wanted to be a performer or not, we were all thespians at New Home Baptist Church. Yeah. And did speech sort of continue to be your thing as you as you 
grew up and went to high school and stuff, it sounds like from some of what I'd read that it continued outside of the church as well. Well, you know, we, I think that, I, I really think that it was a cultural thing, you know, that because, because, and I, I'm sort of figuring this out, so I might have to sort of figure it out as I'm saying it. I think there was so much, there was so much pressure to, to sound assimilated, right? You know, to sound presentable because of, you know, we were in post segregation, right? So in order to be, in order to be acceptable, in order to save your life, really, you know, you had to speak a certain way. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of attention paid to how you spoke. And so there were these speech competitions that we would enter. And, and, and I think that that was, I think that ha that had to do with that. You know, that was a, an extension of that sort of idea that we had to say these speeches because we had to be we had to be able to speak really well in order for us to be accepted, in order for us to get jobs, in order for us to, you know, be able to continue in school. Um, so there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure to do that. If I remember correctly, I think Oprah sort of came. I think, first of all, she was also, I believe, from Mississippi. I could be oh, wrong. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Mm hmm. And I think she also was a, a youth competitor in speech uh, stuff. So I never thought about it, though, from the way you're talking about it, that it was really, you know, sort of almost out of necessity in a way to to protect yourself. It never occurred to me that that would be the reason. But one thing that you've said in another interview that I read that I thought was pretty interesting is that people tend to have this is these are your your sentiments, but that people tend to have low expectations of you when you come from Mississippi and that you actually sort of like that because it's not bad to come in as a, and be underestimated. Right. So what, you know, in, in those days, what were you quietly hoping your future would look like? And meanwhile, what do you think people thought your future was going to look like? That's an interesting question. I have no idea. I have no idea, you know, and I'm sort of coming into an awareness of this lately as because I'm being asked these kinds of questions, you know, I'd never wanted to be an actor. I didn't have a, there was never a dream of mine to be to be an actor by any means. Like I said, you're forced to be an actor. You're forced to be a performer, whether you wanted to or not. Uh, it was just it was it was how you survived in our culture. There was no option to sit down and not do it. You had to do it. So, but I never, never saw myself as a Ruby D. I never, I never saw myself in in that in that light at all. And I think a lot of it has to do with the idea of what you're you're what you're permitted to imagine, right? And where I was from, I didn't have the permission to imagine something like that. You know, because I had to do, you know, a lot of these things are like in the spirit and in the spirit of survival, you know, like the speaking, the speaking competitions and that kind of thing. And another part of that is you go to college. There was also no option about not going to college or not in my family. You had to go to college. You go to college, you get a get a degree and you get a job. You get a mm -hmm. job that is practical Yes. <laughs> so we won't have to continue to take care of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just, yeah, the, yeah, it's yeah. just, 
that's just the truth of the matter, you know. You and, and it, it's sort of like this. You don't. We don't have. You don't have the privilege. You don't have the luxury of, you know, being an artist. You know. Well, how how much did something else that you you've spoken about uh, kind of shape the type of personality that you had as a young person growing up there, and then sort of your ambitions or idea of what was possible, and that is. Interestingly enough, the Huxtable family from the Cosby Show. They were when you didn't have a conventional family yourself. It, it, they were they were kind of important to you, right? Yeah, I mean, it, I didn't I didn't know there were certain things that I did not know existed. For example, I didn't know about you had to take a college entry exam to go to college, mm-hmm. and I was in the tenth grade. You know, Mm -hmm. and I was a relative, relatively smart kid. And I did not. There were things that I didn't know. I didn't know that black kids could go to Harvard or black. You know, I just didn't. I did not know that. I did not know that there was nothing around me that reflected that. Nothing. I mean, I had achieving people in my family, but in terms of a life outside of Mississippi, you know, I, I don't think people really understand. Like when I was when I was growing up, you know, there were people who had never been outside of our county, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, let alone outside of our state. And so when you when you left, you were sort of like the person who escaped in a way, you know, and and so all of that that escape that escape also came from what came through our television screens and 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 the uh Cosby show was was you know essential to that whatever bill cosby did the art of the cosby show was something else and it was something that was a vehicle for me to have an understanding of black life that i had no clue about beforehand and especially i would guess denise huxtable who was kind of your <laughs> Contemporary in a way, right? I mean, she's going off to college. She's going. I don't mean to harp on it, but or try to be Freudian about it. But I just think it's interesting that you know. And I'm going to quote back something that you had said, which was, and may, you know, tell me if it's a misquote, but I thought it was a pretty interesting one. Quote: I never had a father in my home, but I had Cliff Huxtable. I looked at Denise Huxtable and became more of the weird kid. I was more of the weird kid I was because that character made it not just okay to be weird, but also glamorous. I was never encouraged to go to college, but I wanted to attend college like Cliff Huxtable's children. I saw black feminism in Claire Huxtable. I had little in my life of my grandmother's love, but on Thursday nights I had possibility, close quote. That's a very powerful quote. I, was, um, I sounded pretty smart there. When you <laughs> well, let's talk about how your college years unfolded because even that it, there there was a, a unusual and and kind of fascinating thing that happened I guess about halfway through so you start out at the historically black college Tougaloo College in Jackson and then transfer to Brown University of the Ivy League midway through it sounds like there were two key people along the way I think at Tougaloo who really changed the trajectory of your life in a big way. Who were or are Regina Turner and Jim Barnhill? Yes, yes, Miss Dr. Turner. Dr. Turner took about five, it was like seven or eight of us in a, in a broken down station wagon. And I'm tell, when I tell you this thing was broken down, took a, seven or eight of us in this broken down station wagon, all these young people who had, some of those kids had never left Mississippi, and took us to New York City 
to a Broadway play to see Broadway plays. And we saw we saw Fences and wow. we saw Sankofa. And it was it's interesting because I, I, I just finished working with uh, Courtney Vance on Lovecraft Country. And I told him that he I remember I had the biggest crush on him. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I saw, you know, this was the first Broadway play that I saw. And I think it was his, it might have been one of his first Broadway performances. I think so, yeah. He was the son in, uh, in Fences, In Fences, right? yes. Playing James Earl Jones's son. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I just, you know, played his wife in in Lovecraft Country. And I'm just sitting here next to him and I'm going like, yo, man, I, I just, you were my first understanding of Broadway <laughs> and I'm playing your wife. Do you know how weird this is for me, man? So I just, I just, I had to tell him, I had to tell him, yeah. you have these moments, you have these moments sometimes yeah. that come full circle. And I just, I had to tell him, but yeah, so Jim Barnhill, Dr. Turner did that. That car, that station wagon was so broken down on our way back, it exploded. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it took you a little longer to get back than you expected. Yes. It, it literally <laughs> caught on fire in the middle of the highway. That's how that's how bad it was. And then Dr. And then Mr. Barnhill, who's this who Dr. Mr. Barnhill is like set 96 years old right now. Wow. Living in Providence, Rhode Island. He came to Tougaloo. He's from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, came to Tougaloo. And directed a play. I auditioned for this play, like all my other friends. We were just auditioning for the play. I got in. He I, he cast me in the play. He saw something in me. He saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And that I think that's really, really important is, you know, seeing something in someone that they may not see in themselves and encouraging them to go in that direction. And that is what he did. He got me to audition. He told me that I needed to transfer to Brown. I transferred to Brown. Then when Brown was over, he was like, you need to go to graduate school. And so I auditioned for graduate schools. I got, and I was fine with me because that meant that I didn't have to get another job. That didn't have to, I didn't have to get a job because <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do with my graduate, with my little college degree. And then, um, then I went to graduate school and at NYU. At NYU Tisch, a bit, not just any grad, the premier one for an aspiring actor. But I want to just pause for one second, because why do you think, so the, is the reason you auditioned for the Barnhill play because you had gone on that trip with Dr. Turner? I mean, I'm just trying, like, I guess I want to trace it back to when you started to actually really think about acting yourself. Because even like when you went on that trip in the station wagon, were you going because it was just a chance to go somewhere or because you were already interested in acting? Well, what Dr. Turner did is that thing, that thing, that uh, that imagination, you know, thing that I had sort I did not uh, was not allowed to have. She said, it's all right to have that. It's OK to be an 18 year old black girl from Mississippi and dream what dream of things that are not in front of your face to have a have a concept of life that's not in front of your face and to and you you can build that you can build that you know i was a big book nerd you know but her saying to me in 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 that trip right that there are other worlds 
that there are other worlds and you are a strange girl and it's okay to be a strange girl and you can go other places that, that will either affirm or reject your strangeness, but they, they're, they're out, it's out there, you know, and she planted that, she planted that in me. But I will say in terms of like this, the, the idea of being an actor, it, it really honestly was not until I would say on, to be honest with you, Scott, 10 years ago. Wow. 10 years ago that I felt like okay, this might be a this might I might be doing this professionally. But here's here's what here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be okay. a writer desperately. And I was in the 7th grade and I wrote this poem. <laughs> I remember I wrote it on on yellow lined paper and I turned it in to Miss Reagan. And Miss Reagan just bled all over my poem. She just bled all over my poem, you know, bled all over with her red pen. And I didn't, I, it was maybe a decade after that, that I ever wrote, that I wrote another thing. And in terms of wanting to be a writer, you wanted to write fiction or, or for other people to perform or what were you thinking? At the time, I just wanted to, at the time, I just wanted to write what was in my mind. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to write what was in my mind. And the way that I, the way that I knew that I had a way of expressing that, that was not prosaic. That was, that was poetic, you know? And, and she didn't appreciate that. She was not, she didn't, she didn't appreciate that. So that's where, that's where, that was what my dream was. That was what my dream was. The acting thing really honestly was, and, and I, I cannot say this enough, is that someone else was ordering my steps until I was able to see it for myself. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And, and I guess, you know, in terms of just fateful, things. I mean, where, you know, if, who knows where the road would have gone if you hadn't met Dr. Turner or, or Professor Barnhill or the next thing like that, I guess, is you're at NYU Tisch, you're on that track. And then how, what was the, what was the situation, I think, in your final year there where the public theater enters the picture? This is one of the, for people who don't know New York, Joe Papp, the, the premier, one of the premier theatrical venues for, you know, up and coming actors, any actor. And, you know, if I recall, uh, Hamilton most recently was one of the things that came out of there, but it's got a long uh, history that goes back a lot longer than that. And how does your class with you wind up essentially auditioning to be a part of that? Yeah, they were looking for, they were doing The Tempest with Patrick Stewart and uh, they were looking for someone to play Ariel. And it was my third year, I was about to graduate, and um, they were allowing us third years to to audition. And I don't know how this happened, but somehow or another, I got cast in that, I got cast <laughs> in that production to play, to play Ariel. And this was another, this was another thing that happened to me that sort of like, you know, delayed me actually having to try to find a job on my own. So <laughs> it came right on time. It came Well, right and that was time. a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you went through, I know they, they, uh, if, if what I've read is correct, you know, there were a number of auditions, maybe three times you came back for it before they, and you, and you were not necessarily convinced at the end of that process that it had gone well. 
And then you get the call. It's you and Patrick Stewart at the public. And I guess also in the, in the, in the park at one point as well, right before it goes to Broadway. So it's, it's, this was, this was a very big thing. I'm, I was reading, there was an article in the New York times from back then about you and Carrie Preston as these two up and comers who were cast. And it's just really interesting because for the first time now you're working professionally. I think it was, was George C. Wolf was directing this was a, can you explain how big a deal this was to, and then leading to your Broadway debut? This is a long way from, from Mississippi. It was surreal. It was, it was surreal for me, you know, and I was, I remember one day sitting in rehearsal and I'm sitting on the floor and George Wolf is on one side of me. It's an empty room. George Wolf is right here and Patrick Stewart is right here. And I'm like, I'm in between these people. I'm in between these Titans. Why, what am I doing here? Who told, what, what, how, how did this happen? How did this happen to me? You know, and I was just, it, I mean, come on. I'm like doing Shakespeare opposite Patrick Stewart. What, you know what I mean? Like, the, what, <laughs> what, you know? And then being directed by the legendary, the legendary George Wolf, you know? And, and here's the thing, here's what happened with that. You know, it was, it sounds like, oh my God, all these things is cooking on all these cylinders, but New York is a tough place. New, New York is a tough place, you know? And I, 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 I struggled, I struggled a great deal and I didn't have great you know, I didn't have great reviews. I didn't, you know, I didn't have great reviews. And it was like, I, it was like my, my debut, Broadway debut and everything and all these great things. And then, you know, you read the stuff and it's not very kind, you know, and all of that happened within like a couple months of, of, of graduating from graduate school. So it was, it was, it was baptism by fire, fire. Yeah. <laughs> well, Pretty quickly, I guess, after that, or maybe it was even, I don't know, somehow simultaneously, you're on screen for the first time on the TV series, an episode of the TV series, New York Undercover. You and a, and a guy nobody had heard of at the time, but Terrence Howard, the episode was called Buster and Claudia. You're Claudia, he's Buster, and you're working now on screen. Was that something you'd always... You know, when you start at Tish or whenever, was that did that become a goal, or is that just sort of, oh well, now that's an option I've got to I'm going to take advantage of as well? Because it seems like screen acting is a totally, it's actually a very different art form than theater acting, right? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. And and at, at the time, there wasn't a lot of there was there was a lot of. You know, there wasn't a lot of respect given to screen acting at all. I mean, screen acting was you were slumming it. You know what I mean? Like you, this was theater school. You, this was about doing theater and you had to do plays. And that was the respectable life is to live a life of, you know, play theater acting, but theater acting can't pay your bills. You know what I mean? So I'm, I was like, thank you. Come on, come on, New York undercover. Come on, come on. <laughs> and then indie, indie film the next year uh, with, Girlstown, you're a co-lead. It's your, I think it was your film debut and you're the co-lead. So I don't know, did it feel like things were gaining momentum and going in a way that you were happy with? Or or is it deceptive for us? To, you know, it may be an indie doesn't pay anything. Maybe one episode of TV doesn't, you know, I can't, what was it? What did it feel like at that point for you? It felt, it, you know, I just, I couldn't, you know, I, I, I felt that all of these things were just happening really, really fast. 
you know, like really, really fast. And I was six, I was like being really, really successful at this sort of quantum pace. Right. And, you know, going from one job to another job to another job to another job and working with these very like people who are at the highest level of achievement in their fields. I was I was doing that with them. So, you know, it 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 was odd. But you you keep talking because it, it don't you know, it, it doesn't stay like that? that. I said it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like that. Yeah, it doesn't stay like that. <laughs> that was like that for a little while. But. Yeah. And then it's and you felt it slow. Well, I mean, the the first sort of steady gig in a way would appear to be in 96, 97. You're on 32 episodes as a season regular of of the show High Incident. That's that, that I think in that case, you know, that probably paid a few bills to be on TV as a regular. Right. And then some some pretty high profile movies. I mean, Men of Honor in 2000. And you're recognized for it. Uh, you're getting a NAACP Image Award nomination for supporting performance. You're, you know, next time and two years later, Undercover Brother, Best Actress, Black Reel Award nomination. So I think with it, the interesting thing to me about you looking at your career up until just a few years ago is that you're you're working all the time. You're doing really good work that's being recognized by your peers and by people in the community, but it doesn't seem like it was until quite recently that a, a wider group of people began to appreciate what you were doing. And so I wonder if that's how you felt it was. And if that's a tough way to keep going when you, you know, you're doing good work and yet it's not necessarily registering with the people that, you know, maybe you wanted it to. Yeah. Yes. So there were all these great things happening really, really quick for me after I graduated from school, got this job, got that. It, it, you would just think that, you know, I mean, it, my, I'm sure my classmates were highly jealous of me, as I would have been of jealous of them getting that kind of success so quickly. But then after that, it all kind of sort of crashed. It didn't kind of sort of crashed. It crashed, you know. How badly? What was the what was the city? Well, because you were always still based in Mississippi, right? No, I had moved to New York. I stayed in New York after okay. I after I after I graduated from NYU. I stayed in New York, and uh, yeah, it was hard. It was very very lean. It was lean, very very lean. You know, it became financially uh, hard. But then you're you're talking about you know I was just sort of kind of doing this sort of hodgepodge work, you know, and getting things here and there, these independent movies that never saw the light of day. And that I I did that for a very, a very long time, a very, very long time. And then I would have these moments where I would get like, you know, a small role in a movie, you know, that would just, okay, well, I can pay a bill with that or I get a series, you know, and a pilot. I was, I heard Viola Davis say she was the pilot queen. Well, I guess I was, <laughs> I was, I was a pilot princess because I don't want to take queen away from her, but I was, I, you know, pilots, pilots that never got picked up. You know, it was disheartening. Was there any point along the way where you came close to saying, you know, let's try another career. Let's, this is not worth it. I was always feeling that way. I always felt that way, you know, because I, I and I think because I think it was because I never had a dream to be an actor. You know, if I had that engine in me that said, if you keep going, you know, that you, you'll you'll. But I never had that. It was never my dream. I wanted to be a writer. 
So it's, it, it was just sort of like that girl who's the granddaughter of a woman who was who raised you on uh, Social Security, a fixed income and 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 food stamps. And, you know, you got to be responsible because you cannot be there's no one you can turn to to help you. You know, you are on you are if you fail, that's it. You have no one. You have no trust fund. It's nothing like that. You know, so that voice was always in my head. And then when you get older, then your parents and, you know, start relying on you. So I mm. started taking care of my family when it's, when I was 18. I was wow. 18 years wow. old, taking care of my working at a movie theater and, and 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 taking care of my taking care of my family. So I had that responsibility, too. So if the acting thing didn't work out, of course, I would have been a. You know, I would have been a Walmart greeter, you know, just as mm-hmm. long as I could take care of the people in my life. And and somehow, I don't know, I guess these sort of this, there was always this connective tissue to these things, you know, like this wouldn't pan out, but then I would get something else that would buy, tide me over and not get me evicted from an apartment, you know. And it sort of kept me going. And, and you're, you're exactly right. You know, it, it was it was disheartening, even though I was like, even though I wasn't feeling like this is my dream at a certain point when you keep doing it, you, you think like, OK, well, maybe I can do this, you know. And in a way, it might feel it might be almost extra cruel that you came out of the uh, gate. So, yes, you know, strongly and that, you know what it can be like. And now you're having to feel the the lows as well. But I want to talk about a few of the moments that I would guess are ones that kind of kept you in the game, even when it was hard. So I, I think first we should say you went back to Broadway in 2004 in Drowning Crow. And that was a two month period there. And then also in 2004. You were a key supporting part in Ray, Taylor Hackford's movie with Jamie Foxx, who obviously ended up winning the Oscar for playing Ray Charles. Ray Charles in that movie, just to remind people, is involved with three women principally. There's Margie, a woman played by Regina King. There's his wife, B, played by Kerry Washington. And then there is a fellow singer named Marianne, played by Ingenue Ellis, who throws a brick at a car, play, you know, basically a scored woman. Um that must have felt, I mean, I, I know it was not a, uh, I don't think it was a big budget movie, but did that feel like you were in a place you wanted to be? Yes. You know, I was toiling in the wilderness, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and actually my, my mother at the time, like at the same time, my mother was dealing with, um, you know, breast cancer and, and. You know, I was sort of having to, you know, be go to the hospital and audition at the same time. I was doing all this stuff and driving to New Orleans and going back to be with her at, in Mississippi. They're like 100, 150 miles away from each other. So, you know, it was a, it was a crazy time. But I, I feel like I feel like I feel like, um, you know, it was a birth of something. Mm-hmm. Because it just sort of put you on a different level in the world of film, right? Yes, yeah. And meanwhile, the next year, you're again a series regular on a show called E-Ring for a period running from 2005 to 2006. Then you're back on Broadway again in Joe Turner's Come and Gone a little bit later in that decade. And movies that people went and saw, and they, you know, I think you're one of those 
great actors who we took for granted for a long time where, yo, that person looks familiar and, oh, they, they did their job well, so they don't necessarily, you know, almost you make it look easy. So let's talk about the fact. Notorious, the movie in 2009, Taking of Pelham 123 in 2009, a big studio film directed by the late Tony Scott. You're Denzel's wife in that one. And then The Help, 2011. You are one of the maids in, in The Help. And I wanted to actually ask you about that one in particular because this is a movie you guys won the best ensemble screen actors guild award because it was a a fantastic cast of a big cast a lot of great actors telling a story that as far as i know had not really been told on on screen before now i understand especially over the decades since how we've all come to realize that you know there there are other sensitivities that maybe should be observed when you know telling stories or whatever. But to me, I was a little surprised when recently uh, Viola Davis, who, as we talked about earlier, one of our great actresses who was nominated for the Best Actress Oscar for that, said that she regretted being a part of that movie, which it just surprised me because I understand, you know, it's a made character. It's not necessarily the most empowered woman, but it was a very, she was a, a, a it felt to me like a substantive part that, Nobody forced anyone to to be in that movie, and it worked out well at the time. Do you share the sentiment that there is that that's a movie that you know ten years later almost has not aged well in the way that people you know have knocked Green Book or they've knocked other movies that have looked at race recently as not necessarily being really woke? I didn't. I'm white. Maybe I missed something at that time, but I felt it was a fairly progressive movie. Mm-hmm. The problem with The Help is that The Help was written by a white woman. Yeah. It was written by a white woman and it was directed by a white man. And right. that it so it was it was the story of these black women through their eyes. And what I want to be clear is this idea that is sort of attached to this film, the story that's a sort of attached to this film is the stigma, I'd say, is that it, it's problematic because it was about black maids. And I, I resent that because it was black domestic workers who were the basic structure of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they were the, the, the power source for the, the uh, freedom movement in, in Mississippi in a way that, that paralleled no other movement in the, in the entire country paralleled the power and force of these women in Mississippi. And most of them were domestic workers. And one of them was, in fact, Fannie Lou Hamer. So mm-hmm. in terms of the, the problem being that it was about domestic workers, that's not the problem. That they were no less right. domestic workers in Mississippi in the 1960s were heroes. Let's get that clear. The problem is, is who tells the story. That's the mm-hmm. problem. And that that is where we are in this moment of reckoning right now is who gets to tell the stories, who gets to tell the stories. And I think it is I think it's imperative, imperative, you know, that this not be a moment in time, but a real uh, sea change in how we approach these stories that are about black folks. And who gets to tell them? Who gets to write them? And a lot of times these stories don't get to be told by black folks, you know, and that has to change. Because what, in, what happens is, is that there's, there's an immediate distrust. There's a, an immediate distrust on the part of people who are playing those roles. 
and the people who are who are viewing who are viewing the stories. And in order for that, distra- because we know we've had it's it's this sort of you know idea of our stories and our music being pillaged. It's just the story of life of being a black creative person in this country or having a story to tell, and that story being co-opted or stolen by st- stolen by you know by white Americans. I hate to say it, but it's just the truth, you know. And it's it's now we now we now that we know better. Now that we know better, you know, hopefully we all know better now. Um, we have to we have to sort of act in this in this on this on this road of correcting that and making sure that black folks get to tell black stories. Definitely. No, and it's a it's a fascinating situation because, I mean, it's somebody else who was in the help with you who ended up winning the Best Supporting Actress Oscar, Octavia Spencer, then subsequently was a she, you know, I, I've gotten to know her a bit and I really respect her and I felt for her last year or whatever it was, two years ago. She was a producer of Green Book, which got in a similar conversation about white filmmakers, white screenwriters telling a story about black. And, you know, I think that her her comments were that in that particular instance, nobody else was lining up to tell the story of both Don Shirley and the driver who the story centers around with with the two of them. So I just wonder, you know, and I I totally get the idea that people should be able to tell their their own stories. But I wonder if it's almost like there's something about art also where like if you if 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 you as you know as you said you came up you wanted to be a writer. I just don't know if it would if we can only write about our own experiences. I just don't know. I wonder if that's a good thing. And I'm not, I don't know the answer. I'm not playing devil's. I just don't know. Like, you know, uh, who's, does a, does a person who's been, who's physically disabled, is that the only person who can write a story about people with physical disabilities on and on? So it's, I'm, I'm not saying we're going to answer that, these questions today, but I just think it's a really interesting, as you say. Well, I I have an answer. I have, I do have an answer for it, you know, myself, because I know it's what I'm going through right now and, and writing a story about writing a story about Fannie Lou Hamer and writing the things that I have been writing since, since I, since I wasn't, you know, I had cursed out uh, Ms. Reagan. I said, Ms. Reagan, you're wrong. (laughs) I can write, you know, and, and I started writing again. And what actually happened was I had a family member who got really, really ill and I needed to write again in order to survive that experience. So it just awoke that in, it woke, it awoke that in me again. And I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have a story that you want to tell about somebody black, you know, and getting, getting told constantly, nobody wants to see that. Or no one is interested mm-hmm. in that. And, or, and, and the other side of that is being told by when you have a great story you want to tell and, uh, you know, someone, a, a black producer says, well, I, you know, I don't want to tell that story because that's another civil rights story. And, and here's but see the, the other side of that is, you know, how many World War II stories are being told? Think about that. How many World War I stories are being told just in the last couple of years? You know that you know that that there's no stigma attached. There's a celebration attached to history and how we know ourselves through our history. We have these great narratives that are not just okay. We're just telling American history. Like there are these tremendous narratives, but there's almost a stigma attached to to stories about you know black heroism. 
you know, and, and that are that's tied to the civil rights movement or tied to the freedom movement or tied to the black liberation movement. And to answer your question, when the, when that is sort of, you know, when we've gotten rid of that, you know, then it becomes then it becomes another conversation. But now that's how we've been acting. And that's what's unacceptable. That's it's not. Acceptable. It's interesting because you've encountered this kind of uh, these kinds of questions numerous points of your career. I mean, a few years after, I don't want to, I just want to note, first of all, right before the help, you received, you know, real acclaim for the TV film Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story. You're playing his wife. This was before he was a presidential candidate and went a little bit off the rails. I would, I would say, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but, uh, (laughs) but that was, uh, that was, you got another uh, NAACP image award nomination for that. You were in the uh, abducted, the Carlina White story in 2012, three years after that. Again, some some in this case, you won the Black Reel Award for Best Actress in a TV Movie or Miniseries. Back with Tate Taylor, the director of The Help in Get On Up. But the ones that that brought some some of these same kinds of questions that we're talking about, which I I think it's really interesting to talk about. I mean, again, we may not solve the world's problems today, but it's fun to or it's it's stimulating to look at to look at these questions. You were you auditioned for and got the part of a slave who around the time of the Revolutionary War in a very in a limited series for BET called The Book of Negroes 2015 got a host of nominations for this. Critics' Choice TV Awards, Black Reel Awards, NAACP Image Awards, and you've said that playing that part changed your life. And at the same time, you said it was it was interesting to you that there were other prominent actresses who declined the same part. You know, this this part who's in aside from the first episode, almost every scene of the entire limited series, because there was there's a sense like I don't want to play a slave. We should be beyond that. And I know that similar. Things came up uh, maybe a year later with the birth of a nation where there were, you know, why are we doing? So how did you navigate those questions about what is and isn't something you're comfortable playing? I'm not I'm not uncomfortable playing anything. So I don't have that issue. I don't have that. Yes. issue. You know, I'm, I'm excited about I, I'm excited. I, I'm excited about playing roles like that. It's I feel like. You know, now that I feel like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to be doing this acting thing until, you know, I, somebody, till I die. That's, I feel like, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, this other stuff that I, when I was toiling in the wilderness and like, you know, this was what was supposed to happen. Now I feel like I'm operating and why, why, why my steps were being ordered and I couldn't see it at first. This is what I was leading up to. You know, where I can have a convergence of what my purpose is and what my purpose is, is to live, live in the footsteps of my grandfather. You know, that's what my purpose is. And so I'm living in the footsteps of my grandfather when I play this enslaved woman, you know, who who comes to America and and insists on maintaining her 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 African heritage and being someone who who leads folks who to go to Nova Scotia and 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 live another life there as a as a result of this treaty that happened in this in the in the Revolutionary War between America and England and she was on the forefront of that because she she could read I mean all these wonderful wonderful things that this woman was you know and I played that. 
played that in that in that miniseries. So that's the kind of work I want to do. I mean, I want to be a part of yeah. stories of that that the tale about Nat Turner and and the revolution that he that he you know um, uh, led in 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 Virginia. That's what I want to do. That's the kind of work that I want to do. I don't want to run from that. I run to that. I run to it. Right, and it's it is it it is reductive to just label something you know, a slave movie or something in the way that some people were, I mean, these are individual stories that were very important. And, and I thought, I think both of those projects were excellent. I mean, obviously the birth of a nation, I think sadly got lost in the, in a bigger situation that is, is still unfolding. But I mean, for people, I think those are both projects that anyone should be proud to be a part of. Well, I think, um, I think birth and, of a nation, yeah. you know, birth of a nation was, was unfortunately derailed because of allegations of rape of, of, uh, Nate Parker. And there was a, there was a justified reaction to that. And I never, I, I'm never going to take that lightly. However, I'm still very much proud of that film because that film is a, it's a great piece of work. And in addition to that, it tells the story of an American hero, Nat Turner. Um, so I, I think it should be seen by everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, recently, I guess sort of in between those two projects, maybe it's something else started where a lot of people who are listening, maybe it would have, uh, could have caught this because it, it was it had a very big audience and that's Quantico. You were on for two seasons, forty four episodes, playing the head of an F, of the FBI's uh, Academy's training program. Is TV is series television fun for you to do, or is it? And if we gave you truth serum, or is it more about just sort of? Uh, it's a nice check. <laughs> um, why'd you ask me that? You are trouble stirrer. <laughs> You're a trouble stirrer. How should I answer well, this question? You know what? It depends on it depends on the project. Is that politic enough? Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta ask and ask an answer. There we are. Um, I want to now come as we as we continue to move towards the present to a project that. I don't know what your total screen time is. I don't think it was very much, but it was electric every minute you were on screen. And that was Barry Jenkins is If Beale Street Can Talk. 2018, you were Mrs. Hunt. This is Fonny's mother who has a not a, a great interaction with her husband in front of the parents of the woman that Fonny's uh, in love with. But, you know, can you talk about the the challenges and kind of the rewards in a way of of knowing you don't have to carry a whole movie you have to come in and kill kill in one scene i would think that actually maybe in some ways is more stress than carrying a whole movie because if you don't deliver that's your that's your one shot there but what let me let me ask you mhm yeah i that was fun for me i had a good time playing that woman Oh, my God. I had a good time playing her. Oh, Lord, have mercy. She's a character. <laughs> I had fun. The, my only, you know, my, the only downside of playing Mrs. Hunt was that she was only in that one scene. That was the only yes. downside of that. 
I had a blast. And I, you know, I was working with Regina and Coleman Domingo and these other, uh, Michael Beach and these other young actresses that I've become to love. And, you know, being directed by, you know, Barry Jenkins, which was his follow up to, to Moonlight. Yeah, I, I felt I had arrived, honey. I was like, ugh, I'm in the big time now. <laughs> that was that was awesome. I, w- I would watch a whole movie about your character from that one, but uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think um, that was written by <laughs> by the. Uh, by, so we don't have that. But um, but okay. So now that was 2018. If Beale Street could talk in 2019, apparently, from what I read, you were feeling a little down about things. I don't know what was going on specifically, but you're sitting there saying Ava DuVernay is the top of the mountain and she's just never going to, I'm not even on her radar. Right. And so what, what happens then? Yeah, I had, I was having, I was having a pity party with like ice cream and balloons. (laughs) And I just wrote this list that's, that's still in my phone right now. I wrote this list and I was like, these are the things that will never happen to me. Like an eighth grader, right? This will never happen in my life. And like one of those things on that list, I think it was probably number three, was I'll never work with Ava DuVernay, you know? And I swear to you, I swear to you, Scott, within like two weeks, two weeks, I was on the phone with her. And she was calling me about, it was called Central Park Five at the time. And she was calling to talk to me about that. And it at, I was one of those moments where there was a lot going on. Like I had, a, I had, I was offered a movie that I really wanted to do. And at the same time I was doing Lovecraft Country. So it was an issue with timing and I didn't know if it was going to work out or what or not, but it did work out. And in a few weeks I was, I was on set with this woman and trying to be cool trying to act really cool with her and you know meanwhile I'm like on my phone like I'll never work with her my god you know what I mean like (laughs) well so what was it that made you so want to work with her and then how did the experience of actually getting to do that compare to what you had imagined well it's it it surpassed what I had imagined, it surpassed what I had imagined. I, I learned so much from Ava about acting. And, and, and here's the thing, what I have, the, my, because, because I can't say this enough, because it, because it wasn't my dream to be an actor, there was, I think when you have, when it's your dream, it's because you, there's something innate in you that, cause like, for example, Taraji Henson, you know what I mean? She came out the womb like that. You know what I mean? Like she was <laughs> destined to be that. That's who she is. And God bless us all that we have, thank God, you know? Mm-hmm. But that wasn't that wasn't me. So a lot so I didn't I had to learn how to do it as I did it. You know, I mm-hmm. my acting school, even though I went to graduate school, my acting school was being on sets learning from learning from the folks that I was lucky to, to, to work with. So Ava, working with her and just learning about acting from her, I would make these choices and she said, why are you doing that? 
why are you doing that? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea why I'm doing that. And she's like, that doesn't make any sense. And so she just, she just has this like eye that's just so perceptive and intuitive, you know? And the other thing that I really lo- wanted to work, the reason why I really wanted to work with her is this whole, so whole idea about following my granddaddy's footsteps, right? And that's who Ava is. Ava is a social justice warrior who happens to be a filmmaker, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I wanted to be a part. I wanted to be a part of that campaign, and that's what that's what you know. Uh, Central Park Five, which ultimately became when they see us, it became a campaign of, of restorative justice. And um, you know, I would have held a lamp in that thing. I just wanted to be in it. You know. <laughs> well, we should remind people that instead of holding a lamp, what you actually did was play Sharon Salam, who was the mother, is the mother of Yusef who is one of the falsely accused, or as we've learned to call the Central Park Five from this series now, the Exonerated Five. That's that's uh, really caught on because of it. This is a woman who, kind of very pious woman, never stopped fighting for her son, even all those years that he was sitting there for something he didn't do. Did Ava ever tell you what made her think of you for that part? And... What was it like playing this woman who's literally, from what I understand, still living in the building where you guys are shooting the scenes of what happened back then? She's still in the same building. I don't know. She might have even been there when you're doing it. That's uh, so. So just why did you end up in that particular part and what was it like to, to play her? I don't know. I, I, I have to ask Ava one day when I when I feel bold enough <laughs> to ask her a question. Uh, I have to ask her what did she see? What did she see in me to make her want to make her want to gift me with this with this role? And you're right, uh, Sharon Salam, Miss Salam, still lives in the same building. And the first day that we shot, I shot the first scene of the first movie of the, the first scene of the shooting schedule was my scene. Wow. Thank you. Wow. And we shot it in the laundromat in the building and she came downstairs and just just sat there as I was trying my best to not shame her. Yeah. Wow. And you knew you knew it was her because had you already kind of reached out to prep for the performance or did somebody just sort of say, "Hey, that's No, that's I, had, I had I had a talk to I had talked to Miss Salam. I had a um I was introduced to her that that day, but I I had not met her before, but we had a a very consequential conversation uh, about her life. And I talked to her about, you know, this idea of forgiveness and, you know, and she said to me, I, how, how can I forgive that? You know, how can I give, forgive with that, the kidnapping of my children? She said, in order for me to forgive that, someone would have to take a knife and cut that out of my brain. You know, and think about this. She still lives in the same building where that happened. So every time she walks through those doors, she thinks she has to think about that over and over and over and over and over again. You know, this is a really, really profound. She was a she's she is and was a very profound woman. She called me the other day. She's like, I'm working on this. I'm, she is she is she is a social activist at heart and unfortunately her activism had to be used in this in the liberation of her own son yes yes well i guess um one thing that i know the the five gentlemen are were very gratified about was that their story reached a unprecedented number of people you know people that 
didn't know the real story, learned about it through this, which when it went out on Netflix, did huge numbers on the service there, huge audience. And then along comes a day where I don't, I understand you didn't even realize it was Emmy nomination day. This show gets 16 nominations and one of them, Best Actress in a Limited Series, is for you. And how did you find out and process that? Man, I had started, I started getting texts from my friend, from Christine Swanson. And she mm-hmm. said, she said to me, congratulations. And I didn't know what she, I had no idea what she was talking about. And I was thinking, you know, because like I said, I've been doing these like independent movies all for, you know, 20 years that I've been working that nobody ever saw. So I thought my, one of these independent movies was in some like film festival that nobody ever goes to. And I got some kind of like, you know, (laughs) certificate of participation. I am not lying. I saw, I was like, okay, what kind of certificate of participation did I get today? (laughs) You know? So I, I, I didn't even respond to her. And then somebody else texted me is like, congratulations. And I'm like, and then I picked up the phone and I, my, my manager called me and I said, well, she only calls me if I did something bad, if I did something wrong (laughs) and I don't feel like hearing it today. So I'll call her later. And then right. I Ava texted me. So I'm me. I'm driving from Mississippi to Georgia because I'm working. I was working in Georgia. So I was driving from home to Georgia. So I was on the highway 20 on the highway and I'm looking at these texts. So I had to pull over to find. No, I didn't pull over. I called. I said, what's happening? What's going on? And they were screaming. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened? And then they told me. They told me. And so because I'm in the middle of Alabama, I got nobody to celebrate with. I go get gas. <laughs> and like the dude is I'm like trying to pay the gas guy and I'm like smiling and, and he has he doesn't care. You know, <laughs> I couldn't celebrate with anybody. So it was it was silly. But I was very, very I was well, very, very happy about it. And I think that, uh, you know, the significance of that moment you know, it's 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 awesome moment for anyone to get an Emmy nomination. But as we've been talking about, you had a almost 25 year journey from the public theater to that phone call that was not smooth, as you've said, and could have ended and gone in a very different direction at any point along the way. So did getting that kind of affirmation from the TV Academy, from your peers, you know, does that sort of make you, uh, does that sort of refuel the engine in a way? Does it make you, does it lead to other opportunities that make you say, this is, I'm on the right path, even if it's not the one I set out for in the beginning? Like, what does it actually mean to somebody who's, uh, coming to it in that situation, in the, under the circumstances in which you did? I think because it, because it meant so much to me because of what, what, when they see us was, you know, Mm -hmm. And 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 the fact that Niecy Nash got nominated is, you know, and, and I'm such a such a fan of Niecy Nash's and she was just extraordinary in that in that movie. And and Michael and and, and I mean, all these great, great people, you know, and um, so I just was so excited to be to be in that, that company because we were doing something that 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 had a consequence that affected culture. You know, there were con- there was a consequence to when they see us being on television. People lost their jobs. The people who were responsible to what happened to the yo- those young men paid a consequence because of when they see us. 
And so that's that that's what would that's why I was so that's why I was so happy about it. You know, it, it felt like to me, okay, this conversation is going to continue because these nominations happened, you know? So I, I that's why I was I just I just had such joy about it. I just had such joy about that because of that. Yeah. Now was something else already in the works before the nomination or was or I'm talking about of course about the Clark sisters, first ladies of gospel, the the just a uh I feel like Clark sisters must have been already in the picture when that all happened. Yeah, I got the part in the Clark sisters when I was shooting when 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 they see us. Okay. Okay. And you knew the director, it sounds like already from, or was that, that's what, how you were getting to know Christine. She, so you were starting with her and she's now congratulating you about, this is the director, Christine Swatson. So this, this was a timing. So I got, when they see us finish in fall of 2018 and then later, later in fall of 2018, I got the job for the Clark sisters and then we shot in in the the beginning of 2019, so me and me Christine and I were buddies, um, and then in the summer of 2019, that's when the nominations came out. So that's that's very interesting. And so she, um, when you how did how did the project with the Clark sisters first even cross your radar? And what was it that made you say like this is something I'm excited to do? Was it were you already a fan of the of the music of this family or or what? What made you uh, gung ho to do that? Yeah, I was a, I was a, I was more than a fan. I was a student and a stalker of the Clark sisters. Uh, <laughs> and and seriously, I had I was working in Detroit uh, in the early 2010s. I had a sort of successive jobs in Detroit, and so when I wasn't working, I would be find trying to find them wherever they were in the world. I would be trying to find them and I would just show up and hopefully see them or touch them or like maybe they would sing a song, you know, just, I just wanted to be close to them. And so it was the ultimate of strangeness that I, you know, was offered the job to play their mother. And I did thought, I did think it was someone had sent me something that belonged to someone else. So I could not wait for my agency to open the next morning to say, I think that you sent me something that was supposed to be for somebody else. And they said, no, 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 it's for you. They, they, they want Why did you think it was for someone else? Because it, I was stalking these people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it's like the stalker say, being told, okay, you, you can, come, on in. You can yeah. come live with us now. I mean, that's what now, it was like for me. I yeah, it sounds like. But so, why were you stalking them? It was you had grown up in the church. Was it just the kind of music that you loved, or was it something about the, these particular women? Why were you so enamored with them? The the brilliance of their music, the brilliance of their music, and they are this 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 group of women. Their voices sound like no one else. They sing like no one else. They sing in they sing together like no one else. Their songwriting is like no one else. And they are even though they are churched women, they are raised in the Church of God in Christ. They speak to this sort of um, what I would call this alienation that's specific to black women and black working class women in a way that I would say, I don't know, maybe Nina Simone does. So the way that Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen speaks to the working class 
white dude from New Jersey, you know, Jersey, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Uh, um, you know, the the Clark sisters speak to speak to speak to us in that way. And and, and by, you know, by extension, speak to women and all women in that way. And I I was I'm a student of their of their of their music. So now were you already aware of sort of the whole role that Dr. Maddie Moss Clark played in their sort of the, the 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 story that is told by this project is stuff that you know maybe people didn't know and I guess maybe you can if you could share a little bit for listeners who you know tease them if they haven't already seen it although a lot of them did based on the numbers that we'll talk about in a minute but if somebody hasn't seen this yet who's this lady Dr. Clark who you're playing Dr. Clark was the musical director of the Church of God in Christ and Church of God in Christ is one of the one of the biggest denominations in the world and uh, she was the the choral director, the choir director, the musical director for the entire church. So this was a job that had like international implications. She would go all over the world and conduct these music workshops that became that became legendary and all of these gospel artists came out of these came out of these workshops and her influence there was Maddie Moss before there was gospel music before Dr. Maddie Moss Clark. And then there was gospel music after Dr. Maddie Moss Clark. The way that we hear choirs now is not the way that choirs sang before Dr. Maddie, the whole three part harmony thing, Dr. Maddie, Dr. Maddie invented that. And then Dr. Maddie had a vision, right? For what gospel could be. And she knew that her daughters were going to be the vehicle, the craft, the, the vessel for that sound. And she crafted that sound. She crafted that sound, which changed the way, which changed the trajectory of gospel music in this country. Absolutely. And you have said, quote, the biggest compliment to me is when I hear people say they don't know whether to love her or hate her, close quote, speaking about the way you portrayed her. Why is that? A reaction you get a kick out of? Well, you know, I because as you can probably tell in the roles that I, that I like, like the way I love playing Miss Hunt, you know, and, and in Bill Street, you know, I love playing these roles where people, I, the, the women come in the room and make everybody uncomfortable, you know, mm-hmm. that her, her presence sort of just destabilizes the air. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I thought that might be your answer, yeah, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. I didn't want to presume. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't I'm not interested in, in being the, you know, the person who's like making everybody happy and smiling. I'm I'm not interested. That's that's for that's for somebody else to do. That's mm-hmm. not me. And, and and for a lot for a long time I was this, you know, considered like the character actor because I played, you know, because I played those roles. And the only bad part about that to me is my che- my paychecks weren't big enough, you know, because <laughs> I love playing those parts, yeah. you know, in, in the, the, the actors that I like, you know, that I watch those, the, I love character actors because they are the ones that they, they're the ones who are the most fun to watch. And, and Dr. Maddie was just innately like that. She, she was always, she always spoke with authority. She always, you know, she, she threw shoes when people would not listen to her because she had no patience for mediocrity, you know, 
And I, I leaned into all of that. I leaned into all of that. And so I feel like if somebody watches that person, watches a woman like that and does not know how to feel about her, can, can watch someone like that and be like, this woman is horrible, but I like her, you know, <laughs> like that's the, they'll never forget that. You know, that's the kind I want to leave that, you know, the writer Greg Tate talks about leaving a stain, you know, and I, I feel like that's playing roles like that. You leave a stain on 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 someone's mind. Well, and the, the real Clark sisters say that you really nailed her. I know they've said that to you and I'll I'll ask you to characterize that, um, how, how it happened in your experience. But I mean, talk about to prep to play this lady. A, I guess you did get to spend some time with the people you've been stalking and hear, you know, what they say she was like. But I heard you, you went to some real extremes to get the voice right, to get the mannerisms. So people can get a sense of how much went into this part. One of the most sizable parts you or anyone could play. I mean, she is, a she is all over this movie and her, and her influences all over her daughters. Talk about the work that went into getting that ready to go. Yeah, I look, I, I, watched every bit of footage that I could get on her every but you know there are all these like you know really grainy brown documentaries of her you know that were done you know 50 years ago probably um um and I I just studied it over and over and over and over again I wake up in the morning looking at it when I'm in hair and makeup I'm looking at it when I go to bed I'm looking at it and just just studying how she moved her arms how she how she moved her head all of that and then the 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 one of the distinctive things about Dr. Maddie is that and all of the Clark sisters is they have this raspy voice you know this like raspy quality in their voices and I tried so hard, I tried so hard to get that and I just could not make that happen for anything. And so what I would do was I would try to injure my voice to make myself sound that way. So I would do a lot of like random screaming um, to, try to, <laughs> to try to get my, to, to, to try to injure my voice. And I would scream in the pillows and and then so what I would do was I would I would I would do it and the injury would last long enough, would only last a little while. So what I would end up doing is I would have to do it when I was on set. So I would go in a closet and scream to the top of my lungs for a good 30 seconds. And then right after I come out, I would sound that way. But it just wouldn't last. Oh my gosh. It wouldn't last. But I, I, I tried my best. There's, there's one scene, there's one scene that I have with the girls, with my daughters. And I list, someone sent me a bunch of clips because I haven't seen the movie in, in, in its entirety. But I was watching a clip and I thought that someone had dubbed my, dubbed Dr. Maddie's voice over my voice. And I actually reached out to Christine and I said to her, you didn't tell me that you guys dubbed my Dr. Maddie over my voice. And she said, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, I didn't do it. The sound people did it. I didn't do it. And then I realized, I said, that's, that's not Dr. Maddie. That is me. That's me. Wow. That's, that's one yeah, of the times yeah. when I got it right, you know? So I, I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't consistent, but there were, there were, there were seconds, a few times where I, I, I got the sound of her voice. Well, that's amazing. And I think that people should know that you not only, you know, played this complex character, but you also were a producer on this project and sort of an uncredited writer, not sort of very much. Why? So how did you and Christine end up carrying that responsibility as well? 
Yeah, we wanted it to be, Christine will tell you in the first 10 seconds of meeting her that she's from Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody that I know who's from Detroit, they will tell you that they are from Detroit within the first five minutes of you knowing them. They are from Detroit. Go Detroit. So, um, you know, getting this right was really important to her. And because, like I said, I am a stalker of the Clark sisters, getting it right was imperative, paramount to me. And, you know, we both felt that, you know, the script was fine, but it was it didn't live up to what we both wanted to achieve for these women, you know. And, you know, listen, you are a consumer of lots and lots of television and lots and lots of movies. You know that there is very rare where you have this sort of really fleshed out portrayal of women, particularly when they when they are in public, they are public figures that these sort of more parts of their lives get sensationalized, like who they were dating and their drug use and all of these sort of petty concerns that don't have anything to do with their genius. They don't have anything to do with their intellect. And I was, I was insistent that if we were going to tell a story about these women who created, who created a sound of music that changed the sound of American music, that we had to do justice to that. So if we're going to talk about, okay, okay, we got to talk about their husbands. All right, that's fine. But if we're going to do that, then we need to do scenes where we show them creating their music. You know, there's all there's a wonderful scene in Amadeus, right, where, you know, you have um, you have them creating the song and the scene is so good, you know, but it, the sensational the, the sensationalism of the scene is about the song's creation. And I wanted to I wanted to see that I wanted to see a uh, an, a portrayal of a woman, a woman, a woman genius getting that sort of a, that getting that sort of attention. And that's why that's why we did that. That's what, you know, to varying degrees of success. But I at least wanted us to try to get that in the movie. Yeah, definitely elevated it. So this now goes out, uh, finishes, goes out to the world. Talk about the response that you got from the Clark sisters and from the audience. I mean, this goes on lifetime and more than 2.7 million people watched it. The best numbers for an original movie on all of TV in 2020, both broadcast and cable and the best numbers for an ad supported cable movie since 2018. Did that surprise you? What do you attribute that to? It must've felt good that it really got seen. It felt great. It felt it felt great, you know. I I thought I was where I am now, and and you know I, I said, well, I knew all my friends and family are on the other side of the country, and so I they all saw it before it would have been seen where I am now, you know. I said, well, if, if a couple of them send me a text and say, you know, good job, Ange, you know, I'm like, okay, all right, I did all right, you know. If I get ten texts, you know. And then when it was done, you know, I looked at my phone. I had like 80, 87 texts or something like that. And they just kept coming and it kept coming and kept coming. And I said, what happened here? What, what, what happened? What's going on? You know, and it just sort of, you know, Christine is on social media all the time. So she was just seeing all of this like reaction and people just going, going crazy for it. And then people watching it. 
you know, four and five times. And, you know, it's one thing for, for someone to watch it that one time. It's another thing for someone to watch it several times and then several times after that. And then I think this sort of word of mouth started happening and, and, the, and the, numbers, the numbers kept growing. Well, it's definitely uh, some outstanding work by you. Some of the, a lot of people think some of the best they've seen you do. I wonder if you, do you share that, that, you know, it sounds like you don't watch your stuff, huh? I'm that boring actor. Yes. I am that boring <laughs> actor. Yeah. I am that boring chick. Yeah. I, 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 well, is it because you, do you think it's going to change the way that you, it's going to make you self-conscious or what's the reason? I, 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 I don't, I think, yeah, I, I don't want to, I, I don't, I, I think it's, yeah, I think I don't want to be self-aware. I don't want to be self-aware. I don't want to repeat myself. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to commodify my work. You know, I think if you, if you sort of look at yourself and you're like, oh, that worked or that didn't work, you know, or you, if it worked, let me, let's put it like that. If you see something you do and you work, you try, you try to recreate that. You know, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to be I don't want to be a creation of something that I've done before. So I'm very suspicious. I'm very suspicious of that, you know. And then also, you know, I, you know, I just I feel like I suck a little bit. I don't know how else to say that. Like, <laughs> oh, stop. You know, no. you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I feel but, like. So e- e- even when people are telling you like something like this is so great and they're go- they're. You know, you don't, yeah. you wouldn't, you wow. know, I, I came to that conclusion that a long time ago. I said, you know, I was just watching something and I was just, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And I said, you know what would make it better if it wasn't me, if it was somebody else <laughs> doing it, but you know what? It doesn't stop me. Doesn't stop me from doing it. Cause I still, you know, I love, I love, I love playing characters like Dr. Maddie. I love playing Dr. Hunt and all, so much stuff that I've done lately. I, I, I love doing it. Last thing for one minute, just what we call rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Nothing uh, too crazy. So these days you do, I think still, as we were, I think saying up top, you do base yourself in Mississippi. You happen to be in California right now, but your home base in your mind is Mississippi, right? Not in my mind. It's on my driver's license. It's yeah, real. <laughs> well, so the, no, the reason I ask is, you know, most people who are actors or actresses, are in New York or LA. Why do you feel it's important to still be in Mississippi? My family. My family's there. Mm-hmm. My family's there. I had to make that choice a long time ago to go back home and and uh we had a you know family member who is ailing and I had to be there with her. And so I did that and it was the best decision that I've ever made. Wow. Would you like to when it becomes possible, God willing, if we ever get through all this pandemic insanity, would you like to do more Broadway? No, no, no. <laughs> what? No, no. Theater man, theater man. Like, oh, I'm excited about seeing Hamilton this weekend. Yes, yes. I'm excited about yes. that. I'm excited about. But it. you don't want to do it. I, I, I'm, I'm angry because I didn't get to see you with these earlier three. You're fine. You were fine. <laughs> you were fine. <laughs> you were fine. All right. So just the screen for you. One thing that I know is com- I've heard is coming up for in terms of the screen work. Yeah. You and Will Smith will be playing the parents of Venus and Serena Williams in a very highly anticipated project film from Warner Brothers called King Richard. As someone who grew up as a ball boy 
for Ball Person for Venus and Serena and getting to hang out a little bit with Richard Williams when he was just he would be there. I'm very curious what you could tell us about that. Are you serious that happened, Scott? Swear to God, I got some photos. I'll I'll have to email you. <laughs> Please do. Please do, man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We were shooting. That's why I'm here. Because we were shooting that. Out. Oh, that's why you're here. Yeah. Yeah. Is it going to be as as good as it sounds? You know, these these young women who are playing Venus and Serena. I mean, one of them, her name is her name. Her name is Demi. There's a sign of, of Serena that's on in South L.A. And I swear to God, I thought that the that Warner Brothers had I was like, already oh, already got uh advertisement out you know she looks so much like this girl it's crazy it's crazy and i think will is wonderful you know i was having a blast doing that and then you know everything went crazy but i'm i'm really excited about that very i can't wait to see that are you a tennis fan I'm a Venus and Serena fan yes indeed there you go (laughs) um all right last question you have said quote if i have a purpose in life I want to correct how black women have been maligned. I feel that what I do is nothing less than a mission to correct that, close quote. So I know that you've been very active since for long before the the recent activism that we're seeing around Mr. Floyd's death. But as recently as last month, I believe you were, you know, kind of leading a rally outside the academy down in Beverly Hills. You're very involved with this stuff. So I guess... As of today, which is July 1st, 2020, where does that mission stand and, and what are the next steps as far as what you hope this this leads to? Well, I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you this little little story is that one of the things that I've, I have been doing and working on probably for the last seven years is that we've been working to bring down the Confederate flag in, in Mississippi, you know. Congratulations this week. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, you know, what ended up happening, what, what I would, was doing things like wearing dresses on red carpets that said, take it down, Mississippi. These dresses were not pretty at all. They did not give me any best dressed, you know, <laughs> attention. Um, but doing things like doing things like that, I remember I wrote this, I paid for this ad in Variety that cost $6,000. So. When I tell you that I have been working hard on this, I have and myself yes. and other people at home as well, putting our, you know, time, money, uh, livelihoods, you know, towards this. And then unfortunately, people had to lose their lives for someone to finally pay attention. And the result is um, that flag coming down on on Monday. The the governor signed the no. The governor signed the bill yesterday. So in terms of where we are, that's this is this is a good place for us to be. That that pl- that flag is no longer there. And a lot of people say, well, you know, it's not. You know, it's it's just a flag. You know what I mean? That there's so much, you know, it so much more than than, than what what is that going to do? And and what I say is, you know, it's that that question is twofold. One is there's what the flag itself does and what the flag represents. So what the flag represents is Confederate culture. That work is huge. Right. Because I just want to interrupt to say for one sec that for for listeners who may not have an image of it in their head, this was the last state flag that had an image of the Confederate flag within it. Right. And it's just like flaunted. I remember I went for a bachelor party down south where I haven't spent much time. This was about a year or two ago. We went 
we said, let's go to an Ole Miss game while we're here. And that was quite an experience, but we couldn't believe we're looking around and there's Confederate flags everywhere. And I don't think they would have been any happier to see a, a group of Jewish kids than they would be to see, uh, you know, the, the, they're, they're, it's just, it was a closed mindedness that it represented and a hatred. I know that that is probably what uh, propelled you to care so much about that, right? Yeah, 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 yes, exactly. You know, it's what that flag, that, that flag, you know, represents Confederate culture that has been, you know, active, not just in Mississippi, but active in this country for centuries. But the thing about that flag, like your reaction to that flag is that why it needs to go. It needs to go not just in Mississippi, but all over this country because it flies all over this country, is that it's, a, it's an unspoken tool of segregation, Right. Because if you see that flag as a Jewish man. Right. If you see that mm-hmm, flag mm-hmm. somewhere at a, like at the top of a road, at the front of a road, you're going to go. I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to go down that yeah. road. If you see that flag in front of a restaurant, you like I can't I can't go inside that restaurant. So it's an unspoken tool of segregation. We should not have these things, measures of segregation in our country in anywhere any anymore, you know? So that was huge to get that. Yeah, I down. really congratulate you. And I'm surprised that I didn't think like it's what a great, uh, you know, to speak to you anytime would be cool. But the day after this major win, I, I think it's perfect. So I want to thank you for the work you did on that issue and all the great acting that I have watched, even if you haven't watched it. And uh, and thank you so much for doing this. It's really a, a treat to finally get to speak with you. Thank you. Thank I hope it, I hope I keep it going. Hope I keep it going. Keep it go- hope we get, let's get the let's get this pandemic over so you can get back out there. I know. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, indeed. Your, your words to God's ears. Take care, Scott. Thank Absolutely. you so Thanks much. Thanks again. Take care. Be All well. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.